This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, one of the conditions that men often have to deal with is prostate issues and sometimes prostate cancer. But also, even when you have treatment, there are other side effects that you may have to have some surgical intervention on. We're delighted that we've got with us today Dr. Stephen Hudak, who's the Associate Professor of Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, just to set the stage a little bit for our listeners, what do you as a urologist recommend when men should really start having their PSA checked? We really recommend what we call shared decision-making, mindful of the fact that it's nothing, screening shouldn't just be done routine like it might be for your blood pressure or your cholesterol, but rather a decision between a man and his doctor as to if he would like to be screened. Most of the time, this will start around age 55, but men that have a higher risk for prostate cancer should consider it early around the age of 45. And that would include men with a family history of prostate cancer. So if they had their father or a brother who was diagnosed with prostate cancer, or African-American men have a much higher risk of prostate cancer. So we recommend that they talk to their doctor about screening at age 45, with the remainder of uh, most men beginning that screening around age 55. You know, let's assume that a man's PSA does elevate and their primary care provider says, you know, I think it's time we refer you to a urologist. And they go to the urologist, you perform an exam, and you do determine that the individual does have prostate cancer. What are some of the options that our listeners can hear about that would be available to them? Well, it's important to know that while the word cancer obviously is very, very frightening and brings about a lot of emotions for an individual, uh, you know, and his family members, it's important to know that not all prostate cancers are created equal. And when the biopsy is performed that will diagnose the prostate cancer, it will also give the urologist and his patient much more information. It'll give him information known as a Gleason score, which basically is a rating of how aggressive the cancer is. And that's important because it tells you what options might be available. Less aggressive cancers may not need treatment at all. They might just need to be observed. And then more aggressive cancers would be treated with things like surgery or radiation therapy. Let's assume that you have a patient and they opt for the surgery and they do the robotic surgery and it goes well. But afterwards, they experience some symptoms and problems in other areas. And that's going to open up the discussion we're going to have today. What are some of the things that happen sometimes after surgery where you may have to intervene? Well, after surgery or radiation, or sometimes it's both surgery and radiation that are needed for more aggressive types of prostate cancer, the two areas that are most likely to affect a man after recovery this is urinary and his sexual function. And just broadly, that would mean that from a sexual function standpoint, a man may have difficulty obtaining or maintaining an erection. 
And from a urinary standpoint, the main concern would be that a man is no longer able to hold the urine flow back and he would encounter urinary incontinence or leakage. Is that really dependent on age, prior medical treatments, or does anything trigger that? Yeah, all of the above. Men that are in better physical condition before treatment, men that have fewer medical problems, men that are younger are less likely to have those problems, uh, but they can occur in any man. Another thing that's important to know is the type of treatment that's delivered and the quality, if it's surgery, the quality of the operation. Obviously, not all surgical approaches or surgeons are created equal. And so most of the time, surgeons with more experience, especially with the robotics uh, prostatectomy, the robotic surgical procedure, are more likely to have better outcomes in both of those areas. You know, you mentioned robotic surgery, and you also had mentioned radiation earlier, and these are certainly procedures related to having to treat prostate cancer. But why do some men have leakage after these procedures and others don't? So it all comes down to the anatomy and the location of the prostate. The prostate is a gland that in normal situations contributes to reproductive function or making children. But also the urethra or the the urinary tract where the urine leaves a man's body goes right through the middle of the prostate. And so you can imagine that if the prostate is either removed surgically or treated with radiation, it can affect the body's ability to hold urine back. The normal sphincter muscles or the muscles that squeeze to help prevent us from leaking urine may be affected by the treatments, either radiation or surgery for prostate cancer. So if the leakage should continue after the surgery, after a certain period of time, are there things you can do to help? Yeah, very early on, it's pretty common uh, in the weeks that follow prostate cancer surgery for men to have some urinary leakage. And typically physical therapy, certain physical therapists can help men regain those muscle, control those muscles to squeeze them. But in some men, about 10% or so, or one out of 10, at least a year after surgery, they'll still have leakage, in which case there are other surgeries that can help them regain that urinary control. You know, you mentioned 10% of men sometimes still have problems. So there is a surgical procedure or something you can do to help those 10%? There is. For about 50 years now, there's been an approach or or a technology known as the artificial urinary sphincter. And so that's exactly what it means. It's a urinary sphincter that's implanted surgically, placed into the body to restore or give man the function back of that sphincter to squeeze the urinary flow shut. You know, you just mentioned something that piqued my interest. It's been around over 50 years, but it's been improvements made. So Just how common is this surgery among that 10%? Despite the fact that 10% could benefit from it, really the minority of men in this country have access to it. This surgery is only performed about 6,000 times per year nationwide in the United States. While all urologists are trained in the surgery itself and trained in knowledge of the technology, Only about 15% or so of urologists in this country perform the surgery at all, and only about 2% of urologists perform it with any regularity. Many men are affected because their urologist may not be comfortable performing the operation. That's some interesting statistics you put out. 
If you look at the number of urologists, and then you look at the 15%, as you pointed out, and then only 2% of them do it regularly, how do most people find a urologist that's trained to do this surgery or procedure? Well, as you might imagine, the internet has been somewhat helpful here in connecting men to the resources. And so through the internet, through word of mouth, or by direct referral from their prostate cancer surgeon or the treatment team, hopefully we'll be able to connect them to a urologist skilled in this area. A great message for the guys from Dr. Stephen Hudak, the Associate Professor of Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. More on this life-changing procedure next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Stephen Hudak, a urologist from UT Southwestern Medical Center, talking about a procedure now that can help men with urinary incontinence that often occurs after prostate cancer surgery. Steve? Just how does this device work? It's rather ingenious. If you would think about what a normal sphincter muscle does, it squeezes something shut, okay? And again, as I mentioned, after prostate cancer treatment, our normal sphincter no longer squeezes the urethra shut. This is an implanted prosthetic device that squeezes the urethra shut. It's made of a, a material that the body doesn't reject, the body doesn't react to, Part of it is surgically placed around the urethra and squeezes the urethra shut where the man's natural ability has been lost. For the patients that you know and follow and have done this procedure on, does it last a lifetime? Or say every 10 years, do you have to replace it? So that's a great question. And, and you're exactly right that because it is a very delicately designed mechanical device, it needs to hold that pressure and the man has to be able to control it so he can open or relax or open the sphincter when he has to urinate safely, it won't last forever. Now, large studies have shown that on average, it's going to last somewhere between seven to 10 years. At the end of that 10 year, for example, can you perform the surgery again? Yes, of course, depending on what malfunctions, the component that's malfunctioned can be replaced, the entire device can be replaced, and that can be done as needed. Fortunately, though, just due to the, the way prostate cancer behaves in that not all men, but the majority of men, or I should say it this way, that prostate cancer is increasingly common with age. So prostate cancer is not common. It's very rare in men in their 40s, but it's very common in men in their 70s. And so you can imagine that our average patient that undergoes this operation is in their late 60s or early 70s. It's available to anyone that needs it. But you can imagine if the average patient is getting it for their first time around age 70, time being what it is, that it's not something that's going to require placement after placement after placement, just due to the fact that the average life expectancy of men in this country is in the late 70s. What are some of the key things that you hear where the quality of life has been improved? It really is quite inspirational and quite rewarding, and I'm very humbled to have had the opportunity for many, many years now to help men that have this problem. We find that men that are stricken with bad urinary leakage sometimes are embarrassed to go out in public as much. I've had patients that wouldn't socialize as much. Maybe they stopped going to church. 
They may exercise less. And so you can imagine all of these things are going to make an obvious decrease in their quality of life when they're not interacting with their you know, friends and loved ones as frequently. They're not staying as fit. They're not staying as involved in their community. And not all of them, but this is a very common problem in men that have incontinence. And so we found that men that have their incontinence cured or, or dramatically improved with this approach are able to return to doing the things that they enjoy, spending time with their grandchildren, being intimate with their spouse, being involved in their community. And it really can restore the quality of life that was, for lack of a better term, taken from them due to the effects of cancer and its treatment. Is this procedure done as an outpatient, an inpatient, and how long does it take? The surgery takes about one hour. It's almost invariably, in this day and age, done as an outpatient procedure where the man would come in in the morning. You know, they would do the consent and meet the anesthesiologist, do the surgery, have a short post-operative recovery, and then leave later that day. Many men that have had prostate cancer treatment are, are familiar with, but are not at all fond of having a catheter draining their bladder, and this is not needed. We place one temporarily during surgery, but it's removed before they awake from anesthesia, so they don't have to go home with a catheter. The recovery is limited, and over the course of the next several weeks, you know, they return to normal and then come back into the office where we activate the device or turn it on, so to speak, so they can begin to enjoy the improvements that they're seeking. You know, that's a good point that you just made. So you do the surgery, they go home and recover, and when they return is when you actually activate the device. Do they see the effects immediately? When they come back to that follow-up appointment and we activate it, yes. That's when they see the effects immediately. It's not active in the first part of the recovery period right after surgery because we want it to heal in the open position so the bladder can drain safely and all the the surgical areas can heal. But once they come back into the office and we turn it on, that's when they see the improvement. It is a great joy for me as a surgeon to get feedback from them sometimes that evening of them sharing the difference that it has made near immediately. Thanks for explaining that. So when the device is implanted and used, how do you control the flow? Yeah, that's a great question. So This is a function of our body that we take for granted when we haven't had these issues before, that when we go to the bathroom, it just goes. In this case, because it's an artificial device, it's at rest closing the urethra. So you're exactly right. When a man has an urge to go to the bathroom, he needs to be able to operate it or open it to allow his bladder to be able to safely drain. And so a part of the device is, again, completely beneath the skin, surgically implanted, a small pump that is placed alongside one of the testicles right in the scrotum. And so a man would just reach down and discreetly squeeze that once or twice, and that would cause the sphincter to open. He would be able to urinate on his own, and then it would automatically close. So it requires, you know, a pump or two to be able to go to the bathroom, but then it kind of resets on its own, and he doesn't have to worry about reclosing it. Are there any kind of batteries involved that you have to replace? Well, nowadays, no. It's strictly kind of a hydraulic system where the pressure in the system is what holds it shut and then the pump releases that pressure temporarily. However, uh, the, the company that manufactures this device is actively working on a design that would be controlled by basically a battery powered pump, in which case you can envision that the man, instead of squeezing something in his body, 
might use a key fob or perhaps, believe it or not, even an app on a smartphone to control it. So these things aren't available at this time. But like I said, this technique has been around for 50 years and the company is continuing to innovate it to improve the functionality, the simplicity and the safety of the device. Are there any downsides, side effects, considerations of why somebody would not get it? Certainly, like any surgery, we're going to do a full evaluation to see if the patient's a candidate. And a few things would make them be a poor candidate. One would be if there's some other abnormality of the urinary tract. For example, if the bladder's been injured and it can no longer hold urine like it normally would. If there's scarring in the urethra, that would make it unsafe for us to place this device. And then there's other things outside of the urinary tract that would render a man a poor candidate. You can imagine if a patient had early cognitive decline or, for example, Alzheimer's disease or memory problems, more, most simply stated, they wouldn't be a good candidate because it's really best when it's managed and operated by the man, not by another caretaker. There's that aspect of the cognitive or memory function of the man. And then finally, we know that arthritis and neuropathy can affect the way any individual uses their hands, whether they can hold their phone or, or write with a pen. And while it's pretty simple to learn, it does require some dexterity or some kind of fine motor function of that hand to be able to locate and operate the pump. And that's simple testing that we can do in the office to see if a man is a candidate. And this gets into, these are some pretty frank questions, but is the person who we are talking about here able to still have sex? Without a doubt. And because of the nature of prostate cancer treatment, it's quite common for men to have erectile dysfunction and urinary leakage at the same time. And when I speak to them in the office, I ask them which is the greater priority. And almost universally, men find that the urinary incontinence is the primary barrier. So we would start by treating the urinary incontinence. And obviously, once that's been cleared up, that will, will create an environment perhaps that they'd be more willing to, to resume sexual activity. And then further treatments can be done to help if there is erectile dysfunction at that time. And I'm curious, what then do you do? So here's somebody who has had prostate cancer treatment, cannot have an erection. What are some of those treatments you just mentioned? There's many. We'd start with oral medications, uh, sildenafil, tadalafil are the two most common that you might see advertised. Those don't work for all men. And so if oral medications don't work, there's other things that are a bit more invasive, but much, much more effective. There are actually, believe it or not, injections. So a, a small syringe with a small diabetes type needle, you can give the medication directly into the penis, believe it or not. And since it's being delivered right to the area of need, it causes a impressive improvement in blood flow and basically causes an erection. Some men struggle a little bit with needles and for obvious reasons and kind of intimate and delicate areas. And so in those men that either uh, would prefer not to use injections or they try them and they don't work. There's also, believe it or not, an, a surgical penile implant that can restore erectile function as well. Excellent information from Dr. Stephen Hudak, the Associate Professor of Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. When we come back, we're going to continue our little series that we have going, talking to some of the administrative people in healthcare who also happen to be on the board of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. Learn about the incredible career of Becky Tucker from Texas Health Resources next. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. 
with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, we're going to continue our discussion on why many of our listeners may want to choose healthcare as a career. We're delighted we've got Becky Tucker with us today. She's the Senior Vice President of Channel Integration at Texas Health Resources and also serves as a board member of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. In fact, Becky's going to be the chair of our board next year. Becky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm going to ask you a question because I know some of our listeners probably are wondering, can you explain what the Senior VP of Channel Integration does? Well, it's a great question, and it's actually a new role for Texas Health Resources. And as the Senior Vice President of Channel Integration, I have responsibility and really oversee the integration of functions across all channels in our organization. And that includes responsibility for our central staffing office, our patient logistics center, virtual care center, which really is our patient access and navigation components, as well as patient and family experience, joint venture, ambulatory, strategic partnerships and operations, business growth, transformation management, operational design and deployment initiatives, security and business continuity for Texas Health Resources. That's a lot of responsibility, and it is the senior vice president role, which means your career has really advanced, which kind of brings me to my first question. How did you enter healthcare? I was actually a competitive gymnast when I was much younger, and I was injured. It actually was the first time I was introduced into the health system, and I really just kind of fell in love with the profession. You know, you mentioned you got injured as a gymnast. Just out of curiosity, what would you say was your best event? I would say that my best event was actually the balance beam, which is baffling to me now when I think about that that was, you know, four feet off the ground and four inches wide, but that was truly my best event. That's very interesting. So you actually entered healthcare for treatment purposes because you were injured. But then after you kind of learned about healthcare, what really was the calling or motivational factor that helped you consider it seriously as a career? I would say in college, I actually worked for a physician. He's an ophthalmologist. And I was drawn to healthcare, as I mentioned, and through that process, I I always thought that I would more or less be kind of on the direct patient care side of healthcare, but through my experience working in a physician office, and I had responsibility for a whole host of things, but some of that was on the business side of running a physician practice, and that's what really fascinated me was the business aspect of healthcare. And I thought that perhaps if I went through kind of a healthcare administration program, that I would have the ability to make a larger impact and really maybe possibly help improve the care in my communities in a larger scale. You know, that's very interesting, especially as you mentioned, one of your first jobs was working in ophthalmology. So as young people are listening to this broadcast and they're considering health care, 
What would you say are some of the skills they need to consider as they enter healthcare? You know, when I think about individuals that are successful within healthcare, the most successful individuals to me in healthcare are individuals that are good listeners. They can take what they've heard and really execute on those initiatives. They also know the importance of strong, clear communication, and they work really hard to develop strong relationships with individuals really at all levels within an organization. So you've worked many different positions in healthcare. Can you explain to our listeners? Yes, I actually entered healthcare as an administrative assistant. I was at our Texas Health Plano Hospital. I knew I had an interest in working in a hospital setting, and so that was my entry point into Texas Health Resources. And, you know, that was a wonderful opportunity for me to really kind of start really at that kind of ground level, if you will, as an administrative assistant supporting a department within the hospital setting and have grown over the years in a variety of different roles from vice president of what we called um, integrated health campuses through a president at our Texas Health Southwest and Clear Fork hospitals and now as the senior vice president of channel integration at our corporate office. You were at a hospital as her CEO Describe some of the skills that you think most people need to possess in that position. I think that you have to be really a good listener. It's so important for us to be able to understand aspects of our workforce, what are challenges to them or barriers to them, what motivates them. And so I think truly as a CEO of any hospital, you you have to have good listening skills. The other thing is, is that you have to really put forth effort to connect with and round on and meet individuals where they are. Healthcare professionals are busy and it's important for us to kind of meet individuals where they are and be able to get to understand what they do each and every day so that we can potentially help make improvements or make their lives a little easier. You know, you mentioned something in your answer that I think is a real skill that's truly needed for all CEOs when you make rounds. Now, listeners may not know what we're talking about. Explain the importance of a CEO making rounds. For any CEO, I would say that that is such a, an important component to what you should be doing. And rounds are simply going to visit the department. I would often and would require those that were on my leadership team to round in our unit. So carving out some time to make visits, have conversations, listen, get to know the, the individuals that work alongside you, get to know their families, and again, what things are challenging to them, what are things that potentially we could help, what barriers could we eliminate. The best work and the best thoughts come from those that are on the front lines, those that are doing the work in and out each and every day. And so we have to be able to connect with them and understand where they're coming from so that we can be, I think, the best leaders we possibly can. You know, for our listeners, especially people considering a healthcare career, 
What do you think is the greatest misconception in the healthcare world? You know, that's a great question. I think that the greatest misconception of a career in healthcare and that healthcare isn't um, a business, and it truly is. And I think that often people don't quite understand that healthcare, it's a business. In order for us to continue to deliver care to our communities, we have to think of healthcare as a business and that we have consumers that we need to meet expectations. We have employees that we need to care for and provide for and deliver products, cost associated with delivering those products. But healthcare truly is a business and we, we balance things all the time so that we can continue to deliver care to our communities. You know, that's a great answer. And I clearly understand, as you know, I've worked in healthcare all my life. And I'll never forget one time the CEO of a very prominent hospital early in a career when I was like my first year in said, if you don't make a margin, you can't continue the mission. And that is so true in what you just said. It's a business. And speaking of the mission, You've been in healthcare. You've got a bright future in healthcare. Can you share some of the positive, satisfying moments thus far in your career? I've been very fortunate to be a part of the Texas Health family for 20 plus years. So I would say I've had lots of bright spots along my career journey. Having the opportunity to develop and enhance ambulatory strategy for Texas Health Resources was one of my greatest satisfactions. That for us was a new concept. We were developing what we called neighborhood care and wellness campuses. These were outpatient campuses that span really the outpatient care spectrum from fitness centers, physical therapy departments, outpatient imaging, all the way to providing emergency room services, primary care and specialty physician offices on our campus. And so it was a new concept for us. Those campuses really allowed us to deliver care closer to home, and it was outside of the traditional hospital box, and we were able to really kind of grow into emerging markets. But just delivering access closer to home was, and really in in a new way, was very, very satisfying. It was something that I worked on from really a business case through construction to then operating and managing those neighborhood care and wellness campuses. And it was very satisfying. I'd probably also say maybe more challenging time in my career was navigating and leading a team through the COVID pandemic. I mean, as a hospital president, we were waiting in waters that we were unfamiliar with. And it was you know, mentally and emotionally exhausting and not something that I learned to do in any textbook. However, the spirit of healthcare and the passion of our clinicians is felt each and every day. And I would say it's probably the most rewarding time that I've had so far in my career. It was just really humbling to work alongside my team during that pandemic. This is Becky Tucker. She's the Senior Vice President of Channel Integration at Texas Health Resources. She literally went from being an administrative assistant at one of our hospitals all the way to the corporate office. More from Becky next on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. 
This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Becky Tucker, who is one of the top executives at Texas Health Resources. She's also on the board of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. And this interview, along with this series that we've been doing of these younger executives in healthcare who are tremendously successful, is on our podcast and YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. Becky, you focus on some of the social drivers of health, and in a community as big as DFW, I'm sure transportation is one of the bigger issues. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of our greatest opportunities in healthcare is understanding how we can deliver care that's appropriate and tailored to the individuals and their needs understanding how we can do that in a better way so that everyone has the ability to access care when they need it at the right place and the right time that's right for them. And that's something that we need to be doing as a profession is really placing more thought and focus and on how we can deliver care more so and to people that may have more challenges than those that can access that care in traditional ways. You know, you mentioned again, and I'm following back up on what you just said, coupled with having healthcare closer to home. To me, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was we advanced virtual care, telehealth, telemedicine, which I think is very important. In your role at that time as a hospital president, did you see real time the value of virtual health and telehealth and telemedicine? in the area of Fort Worth you served? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the pandemic, to your point, escalated the need to look at those options for care delivery. It also allowed, you can recall during the pandemic, there were times when there were no more rooms at the end. Um, We were spilling over into areas we never thought would necessarily house patients. And when you have an alternative care delivery option for folks through like telemedicine and and things of that nature, it allowed people not necessarily to come access care in those hospital settings. And that was huge for us because while we want to always care for anyone that walks through our doors, we were very much limited at times because of the sheer volume of patients that we were seeing during those pandemic surges. And so to have a different way that people could access care and stay out of our hospitals. Again, we were there for those that really, truly needed us, but often individuals are accessing care in hospitals that could receive that care in a less urgent manner, and that elevated the option for many folks. Okay, I'm going to play a little trick on you, Becky, but I've seen you interview some of the administrative residents and fellows we bring to board meetings, and here's your famous question. What is the greatest misconception people have about Becky Tucker? I think that the misconception, I am quiet by nature. And I think sometimes that has been my greatest power because it gives me an opportunity. One, I don't necessarily need to always fill the air. People seem to do that no matter what, but it really does give me an opportunity to listen thoughtfully. And often when I do that and then I speak, 
folks seem to listen more so. So I think being quiet has sometimes been my greatest superpower. But I think from a misconception perspective, people often think that I'm not necessarily engaged or maybe I'm not willing to have those tough conversations, which is absolutely not true. I'm just being very attentive and and listening and have an ability to speak directly when needed. You know, Becky, I'm curious, now that you know what you know, what would you tell that young lady who got injured back in gymnastics? I would say keep your focus and your desire to continue to do something that's larger than what one individual can do. Healthcare is the right profession to be able to do just that, to really kind of give at a larger level, make a greater impact and feel rewarded at the end of the day that you're doing something of value. This has been a no glass ceiling interview. (laughs) Well, let me do flip it around just to the other side. What are some of the top challenges in healthcare these days? You know, I think um, in healthcare, the cost of care continues to rise and our reimbursements continue to decline, which makes it challenging for us to continue to to do what we need to do in order to deliver care means that we have to do what we do each and every day more efficiently and sometimes in different ways. And that can be challenging for us within healthcare. I think healthcare is competitive. We live in a very competitive market, which is a great thing, I think, in a lot of ways. But it is a challenge for those that are in healthcare within the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex because we are a fast-growing community. That means, you know, there's more people are moving into this market than others. And so we need to continue to work to have ways in which we can really deliver that care to those folks that are making the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex their home. And that can be challenging at times as well. We're still challenged with workforce struggles. More individuals are leaving healthcare than before. And when you live in growing communities and still need to deliver care to those individuals, we have to have a workforce to do that. And that becomes challenging currently in our environment where um, individuals are leaving kind of healthcare. You know, you went from an administrative assistant at a hospital all the way up to the corporate office of the company that owned that hospital, owns that hospital. And then we have little individual physician practices that sometimes are even husband and wife working together or family related. You have the whole spectrum of from the small employer to the great big employer here. How would you, if you were advising somebody on analyzing what part of that spectrum they should fit into and giving them advice on what they might see or experience within those environments. One of the things I continue to advocate for is individuals to volunteer before deciding which profession is, or maybe even which location within that profession is right for them. There's always opportunities to volunteer to understand if that's the best fit Hospitals have volunteer opportunities. I know physician offices gladly, I'm sure, take volunteers. 
So when someone, I think, is trying to understand where's the best fit for them, there's always an opportunity to volunteer and explore that pathway, perhaps. And I would suggest folks think of that before making any kind of long-standing career decisions. You know, this has been a great discussion. You've talked about choosing healthcare as a career. Going to give you the final word. What advice do you really want to leave with the listeners if they're considering healthcare as a career? I think that every day in healthcare is different. And so for those that like to be challenged and those that like to always be learning, this is the profession for you. The opportunities in healthcare are vast and you truly have lots of options. And even in my career, I've been able to really do things I never thought that I would be able to do. And so I would say that healthcare can be very limitless and all the options, the different venues that one can work in within healthcare are tremendous. And so if you like adaptability and you like a lot of options and stability, I think healthcare is a wonderful profession. We've been listening to Becky Tucker from Texas Health Resources. Steve, definitely one of the rising stars in healthcare leadership in the Metroplex. Oh, no question about it. You know, along your career, you have to have a mentor. And now Becky is helping mentor the people that are entering healthcare. And Thomas, you know, here at the Hospital Council, we bring in some of those administrative residents and fellows to our board meeting. We interact with them, try to serve as mentors, and help shape their career. Thank you for joining us today. Be with us next week for the human side of healthcare.